Christ Community Church, this morning for our text for uh, the sermon on wise political thought and engagement, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 17. So if you would be turning there, uh, and the key truth that we want to walk away with this morning is that wise political thought and engagement is founded on and governed by God's sovereignty and goodness. Let me read that again. Wise political thought and engagement is founded on and governed by God's sovereignty and goodness. If you would, give your attention to the reading of God's Word. This is Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 17. For the Lord spoke thus to me with His strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, and they shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Again, just as by way of reminder, this is the last sermon in our Wisdom Topic series. And we felt like this was an important topic to capstone uh, the topics that we've been covering thus far. So please remember that it is critical as we think about wise political thought and engagement, that humility, wise listening, wise speaking absolutely critical in how we go about engaging this issue, how we engage with each other on this issue. And in addition to that, the, the, how important it is for us to think about how we engage family members and friends and engage this topic even with those who are in need, those we work with. So these, these things are all connected, uh, and so we don't want to miss that. And do remember that the goal uh, of wisdom and Proverbs and actually throughout all of Scripture is to help us to become more righteous, just and equitable based on a fear of the Lord. So this, again, this isn't technique. This is about transformed heart. As we've done throughout this series, we're going to look to Jesus first. So what is Jesus's example of wise political thought and engagement? Now, interestingly, we don't have very many passages where he addresses uh, civil government at all. However, we do have one here that I think would be instructive to us. So let me read that for you. This comes from Luke chapter 20, verses 17 through 26, and make a few brief comments of what we can learn about Jesus's wise political thought and engagement. But he, being Jesus, looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies, who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor." So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarii. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? 
They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Now, what we see here is Jesus is, is in a circumstance where he has spoken a parable against the, the people of God, the very leaders of, of um, the, the temple of Israel, those who were supposed to understand and communicate, mediate God's law. So one of the first things that we see in terms of wise political thought and engagement is that judgment begins in the house of the Lord always. That on issues of politics and justice and things of this nature, we need to look inward first. We need to take stock of our own houses and recognize the places where we are uh, living uh, uh, contrary to God's law and be willing to repent because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because we know we can be forgiven. We know we can be restored. It shouldn't be a fearsome thing at all for us to find out we're wrong because we're wrong a lot. We see through a glass darkly when it comes to worldly events and affairs. And so uh, before we can critique civil government, we, have, we need to have spent the time critiquing our own houses in this regard, our own houses meaning uh, places of worship, churches. How are we engaging these issues? And so he goes on to show them what their priority ought be. And so as this unfolds and they're seeking to trap him and notice that they would love to use the local civil governance to, to kill Jesus or do away with Jesus, even though they, they didn't agree with local government at all. In fact, they didn't think you should have to pay taxes. They were the Jews. They had once been the promised land, the theocracy, the people of God. They saw it as beneath them to have to do anything in reference to the local civil government. They saw those spheres as completely divorced from each other. And what we see next that Jesus is saying is, no, those spheres are not divorced at all. In fact, there's great overlap. While we are citizens of, of a, an everlasting city, we're not ultimately primarily citizens of this city, just as the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 27, we have a responsibility to live in the here and now and to make better the circumstances in which we reside. So it is important for us to be good stewards of our local citizenship. But that is not primary. What's primary, and this is what Jesus gets to when he uses the coin, is that, is that God, what bears God's image is to be our main focus, and that's relational. People bear God's image. Uh, um, and so we are to steward relationships above and beyond that which is commodified. And he recognizes that our relationship to civil government is often a commodified exchange. It really is about um, services and taxes rendered, right? That, that, that commodified exchange, uh, protection, protection, security, provision, those types of things. But that's all in a commodified sense because civil government doesn't know us in a relational way in the same way that God does. And so the example that Jesus gives us is we are to prioritize the, the things of God primarily, and then engage secondarily in the things of the world, right, such as civil governance. And so he, he teaches us by virtue of the fact he speaks on it so very little, is that what ultimately is primary is the gospel, and that what ought to shape how we talk about politics in any sphere, in any form and fashion, ought to be who we are in Christ, who Christ is as king, who God is as sovereign and good. 
And so that's an important lesson for us as we step into this Old Testament text from Isaiah chapter 8. And if you would turn back again to Isaiah 8, 11 through 17, and let's see that God's sovereignty and goodness ought to be our political prejudice. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me. Now, let me pause here for just a second. It's very important that we recognize who he's talking to. So he's talking to Isaiah the prophet and his disciples. So he's not, this isn't a broad discussion for the people of God, because if you read previously in Isaiah chapter 8, the, the, the people of God had gotten all tangled up in being afraid of the gathering storm of the Assyrians to the north. And they'd become afraid of other political circumstances, and there was a lot of fear and a lot of rumors swirling around at that time. And instead of them turning to the Lord, they instead were turning to other political uh, alliances. They were turning to their own gifts and abilities, their own uh, f- fluency, and, and all of these other types of things. And they, they were continuing to do the religious minimum, but they had it flipped. They had it, the things of this world were primary to them. And so God comes to Isaiah in, in an effort to say, there must be a remnant preserved a group of people who understand how to navigate these times, this, this political circumstance with wisdom and the right focus. And so uh, it's interesting the way it says that his hand was strong upon Isaiah. So this, this, what this tells us is these words that he's going to give to him have great gravity. And so we want to make sure that we pay clear attention to what's being said. And remember, we're, we're, we're in a not dissimilar time right? We've got a lot going on, and there's a lot that people are concerned about and afraid of, and there is a sense of dread, and there are all kind of rumors and conspiracies from every direction swirling about. And so it has very much, we live in a time in which we've been decentered and we've been divided, and so this is a clear word that is important for us. So let's hear what he says. And then God warned Isaiah not to walk in the way of this people. Now, what's interesting is that this people is not just the general worldly secular people. No, he was actually speaking of the people of God. He was actually saying that, that his own people had gone astray in this regard. And he's telling Isaiah, don't go the way that they're going. And notice the way they're going. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Now, there is a sense in which these things are linked together, and they, they, they promote each other. So it begins with these conspiracy theories, rumors of the gathering Assyrians, rumors of some sort of fault going on within, rumors of things that Again, the reason that they have some, some saliency, the reason that they are believed is because there's some kernels of truth in them. There are some evidences of these things. It's not complete flights of fancy. But what's happening is, is people are speaking as if they know exactly what's happening when they don't. And that's causing folks to get tangled up in fear. And when we get afraid, we do interesting things. We make all kinds of, of mistakes. We frequently allow our fear to overshadow God's clear teaching about obedience and His law and how we are to live and the ethics by which we are to live. We allow that to be swept away by the things we're afraid of, and eventually that leads us to a place of dread. And dread is cynicism and despair. Now, if you find yourself in any of those places, 
right? That, that, that you are, you've gotten tangled up in what a particular news outlet or video outlet or social media outlet is, is putting forward as if they know for sure. First and foremost, we need to question in humility, how do these, do these people really know? It's not to say there's not evidences, but is it worth us investing our time and, and, and really, it, which way is it leading us? How is it capturing our imagination? So if you're investing all of your time in a few singular outlets that are causing you to, to, to be afraid, it's not in any way, shape, or form uh, leading you to, to have hope in God's sovereignty and goodness or the reign of Christ as King, that's dangerous. I don't care what outlet it is. I don't care what their purpose is. Either there's something wrong with your engagement of that outlet or your heart or the information that's being put forward. So if it's leading you to a place of fear and cynicism and dread, I've got good news for you. You can repent because in Christ, we can turn away from those things, right? We can admit that we've gotten tangled up. It happens to all of us at varying times if we're honest on varying topics. We get tangled up. We overemphasize. We, we lack humility in how we engage it. And once we get afraid, we frequently turn things into commodified exchanges or we diminish the image of God in those we see as our enemies. We even diminish the image of God in ourselves because we think that maybe God has forgotten or forsaken us. And so it's very important that we see that this string is not just linear, it's cyclical. So dread leads us further back into conspiracy, further back into fear, into deeper dread. And so we need to see that as a sinful cycle. Sinful either because we've given ourselves over to it, sinful because it leads us away from God. And, and please hear me, it is not the end. And if you're guilty of it, as I have been at varying times in my own life, there's hope. There's hope in Christ who is interceding for us, the Spirit who's praying on our behalf, who longs for the church to not be caught up in this place, to seek to stay firmly founded on what is clearly true. We don't see through a glass darkly when it comes to the character of God or the person and work of Christ, redemption, salvation, or how the story is going to ultimately end. You know, one of the reasons that the, the book of Revelation is not the book of Revelations is because it is a singular declaration of the victory of Christ in which all things will be made new. While there's many parts of it we may not fully understand or be able to comprehend, what is comprehensible and what is crystal clear is that He is and will be victorious over all and make all things new. That should be good news to us. That, is, that should be firm a firm foundation on which we stand and think about present events. Now, he goes on to say, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. And so what should be clear to us is that God is, is holy and he's, that means he's unchangeable. That means he's other than us. That means that his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And so we need to recognize that in his holiness, that he will keep his promises because he is unchanging and because he is good and because he's powerful over things. In his holiness, he is sovereign. Now, we have to admit there's a great mystery in that. If we were to find ourselves in other historical eras, like say you were a Christian in Kiev when Stalin was, was starving millions of people to death. Kiev was, was a place at one time that was considered the great seat of the Orthodox Church. 
and they would have saw themselves as set apart and special people to God. And for this to come upon them, where is God's sovereignty? If you were Christian in Nazi Germany during that just dark night that just overshadowed most of your, if you were a Christian in Europe at all, if you're a Christian in Palestine, if you're, if you're a Christian in Morocco, if you are a Christian in Cuba, if you're a Christian in China, it's challenging to, to see the sovereignty and the goodness of God in that. And so don't miss that Isaiah and his disciples are being told. This has to be your firm foundation because trouble is coming, but not, not because it's the Assyrians, but because it's the judgment of God that's coming. And that doesn't mean that you won't get swept up in it. It doesn't mean that, that they won't, because of their obedience, that they won't suffer. We need to understand that. The suffering is part of union with Christ, and the world hates what we do. Like We're so concerned with, with, with other political statements and stances and failing to recognize it. When you say Jesus is Lord and that every knee will bow and every tongue confess, that is hate speech to a fallen world. <laughs> Sooner or later, that bill will have to come due. And so we need to make sure that what, what we do is, is be obedient to the Lord who is holy. Seek to be holy, as Peter says, as he is holy. And remember, Peter was writing that to a group of scattered believers who were going to be persecuted, who would have to serve. And remember that language that you, you heard from our assurance of pardon. Think about who he was talking to, this scattered group of people who'd been exiled. They, that generation had never seen the promised land. And he has the audacity to describe them as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart for his good. It, it, if they would have looked around at each other, they would have said, that, that's what this is? We who are being persecuted and we are scattered and we have no control whatsoever over local governance? And remember what he tells them. How you live matters for the life of the world. And you need to recognize what's at stake here. You need to recognize who is ultimately in charge and submit to, to me in your obedience and, uh, because of your transformed heart in Christ. And so here, again, the, the fact of, that God's holiness is the prejudice. It's the thing that has to matter to us the most. It's a call to worship in a sense. And then he says, let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Now, not fear and dread in the same way that conspiracies produce, but fear in the sense of reverence and awe that the maker of the universe is concerned for us at all that he keeps his promises, that even in the darkest of nights, his promises hold true, that the church has never been defeated in history. In any reading of history, it has been tried and tried and tried and tried again. We've even tried to destroy ourselves from within and haven't managed to do it completely. And so what we see here is that we are to revere and be in awe of him. As far as dread is concerned, is the recognition that he is a disciplining and just God. He will bring judgment. This isn't arbitrary. The thing that we ought dread is that we would in any way, shape, or form dishonor him. The one who loves us, who has loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us, that he indwells us with the Holy Spirit, that he gives us all the resources we need to navigate and flourish and cultivate life in a fallen world, in exile, in a fallen place. And so what we ought dread is the thing that Christ dreaded, which is separation from Him. And we need to understand what actually separates us from Him. 
No civic thing can do that. No political king or queen can do that. No party, no, no circumstance can ultimately separate us from the love of God, as Paul declares in Romans 8. But what can, what can separate us is a complete lack of acknowledgement of his sovereignty and his goodness and his love for us. A disregard of what he said uh, would actually honor and glorify him in word and deed. We need to dread anything that would cut us off from worship, cut us off from the Word of God, cut us off from the person of God. And it goes on. And He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. What's being said here is that you cannot escape the presence of God. Either you will engage Him as a sanctuary or a Redeemer, like a place of respite, a place uh, of redemption, or you will engage him as judge. That, that stumbling block of offense, and if you notice how many times the, the passages that we've used uh, in, in this particular liturgy mention the, the, the stone of stumbling and offense. So it's important that, that we see that his presence is inescapable. Even the psalmist recognizes you, you, you can't even go into the grave that God is not there. You can't go into the darkest of darkness that it is not light unto the Lord our God. And that should actually be deeply encouraging to us. That means that there's no political persecution, no political circumstance that we will endure and live through that God is not there with us, that he is not present with his people, that he is not at work in judgment and justice now. He does not work according to our timetable. He doesn't work according to our comfort or happiness, right? Deuteronomy 29, 29 makes it very clear that there are certain things that are just utterly mysterious. But what he has made clear in his word, we are to do and pass on to the next generation. Too much of our time is wasted on prognosticating on things that we don't have the ability to ascend to. Equally, the psalmist says, some things are too wonderful for me. It's not to say that there aren't topics we should wrestle with, but we should do so in wisdom. And I seriously doubt we have come close to exhausting, uh, uh, mastering what he has made clear in Scripture. <laughs> Think of last week's sermon and the call to wise justice toward the least of these. Have we mastered that? Have we so dealt with that issue that we're ready to tackle something deeper? Have we so mastered loving our neighbor that we, we would have any other time for, for some of these topics and some of these, these things that we really don't have an answer for. If there's not a scripture that points to it and says it, then, then it's a real struggle for us to get there from here. Again, not to say it's not worth sometimes uh, banting about a little bit, but it shouldn't take up the majority of our time. Majority of our time should be, should be engaging in relationships and mission to which God has, the mission to which God has called us in worship and growing in our love for him and doing the things he's given into our hands in the local context to which he has called us. And so we recognize that this idea of sanctuary, it sometimes means in the midst of suffering, which all throughout history, the people of God, if you add up the number of years that they have functioned under what will be considered a good government, a government that would be like-minded with who they are, it is minuscule compared to the number of years that they suffer under worldly governments, the principalities and powers of darkness. And so we have to have a firm foundation. And so this is where we must seek to trust the Lord our God and, and recognize that He is always with us. 
And that the distinction is, are we living in a way that, that allows us to come boldly before him, at peace with him, as Romans 5 tells us? Are we in union with Christ? And how we talk about political events evidences where our hope lies. It evidences what we truly believe about God and theology, and most importantly, whether or not he's sovereign. Again, we don't have to be able to explain it to believe it, right? There's things that we look at and we can declare, I trust God is sovereign. That's why it requires faith. I trust God is sovereign over these things, but I have no earthly idea how he's going to work it out for his good. I have no earthly idea at this time. I can't see it. That's a, that is an honest and true confession. Remember, the antithesis to faith is not doubt. It's pride. It's arrogance. It's saying, oh, I know what's happening, and I know what we have to do in our strength to overcome it, to overthrow it, to destroy it, to burn it down. No, no, that's not for us to do. And so we need to recognize that, that what we're being called to here um, is, is to exemplify something before the world that the world desperately needs to see and, and, and recognize. Uh, exa true examples of faith, and even more important, true hope. Hope that, that actually is, is manifested in how we live. And so uh, it's important that we, we recognize that this is something that we are also to bind up. See, what he's saying here is this, this has to be constantly before you. It has to be part of you. It, it, he says, seal the teaching among the disciples. We have to hand this on to the next generation. We can't allow another generation to have no earthly idea how to wisely talk about politics in a biblical fashion. We've let the world control that narrative. We, we, we've let the extremes control this narrative for too long. And then he says, much like Habakkuk, I will wait for the Lord. And notice this next part. Notice this part of the confession, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. So what Isaiah is saying is there's no evidence at this juncture that there will be anything redemptive to come. There's no evidence at this juncture that God is really even present with us or favors us. There's, there's no, no evidence that this is being worked out for the greater good right now. But notice Isaiah's faithful confession, but I'll wait for him and I will hope in him. This is our call. We are called to wait upon the Lord and, and have him reveal in his timing what he wants us to know about historical events, recognizing that everything throughout history ultimately points to Christ, either the need for Christ or the saving power of Christ or the, the death of Christ or the resurrection of Christ or the ascension of Christ or the coming again of Christ. All of history ultimately arcs toward those things, right? Just as the law, the prophets, and the Psalms did and is declared in Luke by Jesus himself. Everything ultimately points to him. And who does Jesus point to? God the Father who is both sovereign and good. He keeps his promises even when we can't explain it, even when we can't see it directly. And we have to, in humility, recognize. And Scripture has told us there are times we're not going to know and we're not going to understand. But in that interim, we are to do the things that we are called to do for God is holy and he is to be feared. And we are to dread anything that would keep us from him. I would argue that we've let much of the current political discussion keep us from him and from each other. It's, it's divided us in ways that it, it should never have, should have never even been anything that we would have allowed to come between us. 
that we would in humility recognize there's things I'm concerned about. There's things I see that I think aren't right. And certainly steward your citizenship. Use the avenues, the legal avenues that you have to have your voice be heard. But, but remember, just because something is lawful, as Paul would say, doesn't make it wise. If you're not asking before you proceed down some path whether or not this is going to affect the unity of the church, if you're unwilling to even ask for wise counsel concerning what you're going to do, I think that says a lot about where your head and heart are. Right? We should be, those things should be what govern. And really what we're talking about is the sovereignty and goodness of God. That should be what governs us as we make the decisions that we make. We should be able to talk with each other and wrestle with these things with each other and, and, and be more matured by the collective wisdom of the differing gifts, perspectives, and abilities. But we seem to be afraid of that conversation at times. Why would we be afraid of one of the means of grace that the Lord has given to us? Are you even praying about some of the political decisions that you're making? Are you, are you praying about uh, things before you say them out loud, whether it's online or in person and some other avenue? And so it's important that we be framed by who God is, who Christ is, because that's really who we want to be. And that's true of us in the political sphere. Listen to what John Oswald says about this passage. He says, in the middle of the whirlpool, he's describing the swirling circumstances of the day, the rumors that are coming about. In the middle of the whirlpool, God comes to Isaiah with specific instructions. In the first place, he is not to lose his focus on God. It's critical. Have you lost your focus on God in the midst of all this? If you have, that's a, that, that's a signal that tells you something. Something is wrong. You can repent and get back to what you ought to focus on. He goes on. He should not be swept off his feet with the latest conspiracy theory, and he should not fall into the trap of fear. Unlike his contemporaries, he should not be spending time creating fanciful, unfounded explanation of what's really going on. Arising out of the terror of uncontrollable events, instead, he should focus his attention on serving and pleasing the God in whose hands our destinies reside. The attention to fear in 8, 12 through 13 is important. The fear of the unknown is a defiling kind of fear, but the fear of the Lord is clean. This phrase describes a way of life that pays primary attention to learning and obeying the ways of the only one who can truly be called holy. So the question that I have for us, and this is worthy of us taking the time to really sit in and think through, what politically has most captured your imagination during the events of the last year or so? Is it a particular website? Is it a particular line of thinking? Is it a particular set of conspiracies? Is it a particular set of supposed secret knowledge? Is it, is it fear? Is it dread? What, what has captured that imagination that you have? And I mean your, your vision for the world, the vision for, for where the Lord has us. And then has it left you hopeful, afraid, or cynical, or in dread? Those things are important to consider. And you may say, I'm just being a realist. Yes, a realist who sees through a glass half darkly. A realist who doesn't understand the fullness of the sovereignty of God. A realist ought to be one, a true realist, biblically, ought to be still with hope even though they have doubts instead of doubts that lead them to cynicism and fear. And then what does most govern your political thoughts and engagements? 
Only you can answer this. What has most shaped how you view these things? Is it the Constitution? Should the Constitution trump what Scripture says in how we go about our lives? And you may say, yeah, well, the Constitu those guys were writing the Constitution. Uh, they, they were doing so with a biblical frame. Maybe an Old Testament Judeo frame, but not a purely Christian one. Christ was not what was to be exalted by the Constitution. No, our freedom and liberty was what was to be exalted by the Constitution, which are not bad things, by the way. I'm not against those things, but they're secondary to the exaltation of Christ. Notice, he gave up his liberty and the fullness of his freedom, which is greater than anything we could ever know, to redeem us. As his ambassadors, as those who come in his name, might we be called to a similar circumstance in varying places, Christians have, martyrs have, for centuries been called to that. I, don't, I can't prognosticate what we're called to, but what I can say is regardless, we are called to be obedient to the word of the Lord, to exalt his sovereignty and goodness, and to exalt Christ as king of his kingdom, and to be missional to those around us for the life of the world. And so Isaiah 8, 11 through 17 teaches us that wise political thought and engagement is founded on and governed by God's sovereignty and goodness. Church, would you, again, join us in seeking to, to grow in the fullness of our witness in the, the various places where we live? And politics is a key part of that, right? A, a stewarding, being involved in some measure, stewarding our citizenship, and, and doing so for the life of the world, evidencing that we care about how policies affect people, that we care about how policies land on certain people distinctly. That's from last week, and in particular in other places as well. But, but more than that, we, we should want to be able to engage in those conversations for the sake of hope because people are so weary. They're so fearful, and there's so much dread swirling about. Let's not miss this opportunity to mature in this way. It's okay that we're novices. It's okay. It's okay that we're, we're going to mess up some. It's okay that we've messed up in the past and need to repent of some stuff because of what Christ has done for us. So let's be a people who apply the gospel and then live it out in this particular sphere that is of great importance in our time. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have sent Christ to redeem us, that, that, that that which separated us from you, that's the greatest dread of all, being separated from you, Christ has, has covered that distance. Christ has made it so that we could stand in front of you who are holy and be viewed as righteous in Christ because of what he has given to us. And let us remember Christ's example and how he makes it clear that, that we who follow him won't be greater than him. That means that, that we will endure some of the things that he endured just as we are called uh, uh, to, to, to suffer in union with him in varying circumstances. And that is for you to sovereignly decide and to, to reign over in your goodness and to maintain for the greater good in ways that we won't be able to understand at all between the now and the not yet. We have to trust you in faith. Because, as Isaiah said, in other places it's been stated in Scripture, there are times when it looks like you have turned away. There are times when you seem absent and all of heaven is brass to our prayers. So, Lord, help us 
to mature in this way. Our communities need it. What a great opportunity we have to evidence so beautifully and clearly our hope in your sovereignty and goodness and our hope in Christ and our hope of a new heavens and new earth. Not that we would be of no earthly good as a result, but become of the greatest earthly good because of those truths. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.